Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today on the podcast, we have Genevieve Hall. Genevieve is an ADHDer, a writer, and a digital marketer. So Genevieve, what does neurodivergence mean to you? To me, it meant a really helpful roadmap into how I work, into how my brain works. And actually, it gave me a reason to not be judgmental of myself. So it was just a, an insight into how I can put myself in situations that work for me instead of flagellating myself for not working in every situation that I get put in. So, Yeah, had you found that you were particularly judgmental of yourself in certain situations prior to having that realisation? Absolutely. I'd say that was my full-time job. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yikes. It was just being judgmental that I wasn't like uh, keeping up the way that I thought that other people seemed to be or keeping track, especially of time, Mm. (laughs) the way that other people seem to be able to. Yeah, I'm just I'm just a bit more rangy, a little bit more of a loose unit, but I have other talents. It's fine. So for you, Jen, when did you actually first realize that you were neurodivergent? I suspected in my early 20s. Um, no one suspected it of me, though. Mm. So when I think back, I remember a moment when I was a kid and I was looking over mum's shoulder. She was writing the um, the Christmas newsletter. And she was writing like a little blurb. This is like a very early 2000s thing for middle class Australian (laughs) families to do. I love it. Yeah. Shame that went out of style. But um, yeah, and she was writing like a little blurb about each of the kids. So I've got an older sister and an older brother. And she came to me and she wrote, Genevieve is in nippers. So like Mm -hmm. swimming, like surf swimming lessons. Genevieve is in nippers. Um, She recently had the you know, the end of year championship. Uh, and we proudly watched as she ran into the surf with the other kids, but sort of forgot she was in a race and stopped to poke a jellyfish. But we hope she'll never change. <laughs> and we're looking at it and being like quite offended, but then also being like, yeah, like a jellyfish is much more interesting than running or swimming fast than someone. I, I actually don't know why you guys think that's cool. I hard, hard. Have you seen agree. a jellyfish? Um, I would have to agree. I've noticed that a lot of neurodivergent people aren't that into team sports or like, oh, this is so boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know if it's like a personality thing that I'm not competitive because I feel like I can't win. I actually feel like it's, um, I think it's cool. I think it's really amazing when people strive really hard and do things like harder than anyone. But I just don't care about being part of it. (laughs) This is not for me. I like it. Good on it. So that was a little uh, clue for you when you were a kid that maybe um, your brain was sort of operating a little bit differently to uh, (laughs) other people's. Um, And what was that like? What type of realisation did you have, um, you know, maybe in your later teens or your 20s? Yeah, it wasn't until my later teens, as in when I was at uni, that I really started to think, oh, like I seem to be struggling in ways that others aren't. Maybe this is a little bit different for me. But I skated through school pretty well because I was a I was a quiet kid. I was really nice. I was pretty bright. 
So I wasn't going to attract attention. Mm. Also, my parents were both teachers, so I knew how to endear myself to teachers, Mm. (laughs) which is basically to be quiet and do well enough. It didn't raise any red flags for anyone. It's like, this kid's doing fine. She's doing great. What harm? But then um, maths or science-related classes, I would either – actually, I would sort of engineer. I remember in a science class I broke my arm, and so I actually managed to get out of all of the assessments for that term. Amazing. And that I never did science again. <laughs> so no one ever really realized <laughs> how badly I would have done. Like Incredible. And in hindsight, like, oh, that's a bit manipulative, but I'm not a manipulative personality. I was just trying to like optimize my way through. Well, actually, um, I- I'm going to stop you there, Jen, because I think manipulating people is consistently seen as a bad thing because mm-hmm. we see it as a way of... Um, I don't know, causing harm to other people for our own gain. But actually everyone manipulates people every single day for things. Manipulation is just trying to get something, get an outcome that you want. Um, So, you know, I think for most circumstances, as long as you're not causing harm to other people, manipulating a situation so that it, uh, you know, the outcome is in your favor is actually a really clever, adaptive, incredibly bright thing to do. That makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think manipulation is bad if you're taking away the choices of another yeah. person or if you're controlling anyone else. It wasn't that. I was just trying to get through without, you know, getting busted by my parents or teachers. So exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, so science, maths, I'd sort of be bumping along on C minuses, but then Spanish and English, which I loved and had teachers who invested a lot in me. Um, so I'd hyper-focus and just like, mm. you know, put my heart and soul into those projects and did really, really well, like excelled in those. And then once I got to uni, it was the wheels just fell off. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm also lucky to come from a, a pretty steady home. We had uh, dinner on the table every night. I didn't have much outside of school to manage. Mm-hmm. So, but once it came to like the routine existed and it, and I was in it and I didn't have to choose or manage any part of it. I just had to operate in it. Once I got to uni, the wheels fell off really hard. Mm. So I I think I I passed one uni subject. I, I studied, did one university subject while I was still in high school, in grade 12. I did really well. But after that, once it was just me trying to operate independently with like a full course load, I've never been able to work it out. Yeah, I wonder if that's because when you get to university, there isn't as much external structure. There's no one, no one cares if you don't attend your classes or if you don't study. No one's checking up on your homework or your assignments. Exactly. Um, So a lot of people do struggle when they get to university. Yeah. And I think that can be a period where they, they're sort of, they don't help you on purpose because you're a young person and you need to be able to um, step outside of your shell and to step up into that and and learn how to manage it's okay if you flail a bit that's fine something I didn't know at the time it's actually a good really good period of your life to be flailing Mm. that's the practice ground like (laughs) do it there so I'm wondering Jen when you say, you know, you got to uni and um, that external structure was withdrawn and you really had a hard time kind of keeping on top of everything, what do you think was driving that? Was it that there was no accountability? Was it that you actually weren't sure how to structure your day or your course load? Or was it something else entirely? 
I'd say I feel an excess of accountability, mm-hmm. actually. Um, I feel overly responsible for things. So that's whether that's an anxiety thing or anxiety because of ADHD or just a personality thing. I've never let things slide just because I don't care or I'm ambivalent apart mm-hmm. from like nippers carnivals. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I'm comfortable with letting that go. Like my priorities are okay. Um, but yeah, it just, I didn't know what to do. I always felt like I was missing some key piece of information. And I think I usually was. But even when I thought I was on top of things, I'd be so stuck. Like I always felt blindsided that there was some instruction that I'd missed. I'm like, but right. where was it? Like, was it in class? Was it I was showing up to the classes? Was it online somewhere? Like, right. I'm better at using the internet than, than the teachers are. So I, what did I miss and when? Like, <laughs> Okay, that's so interesting. So it was sort of like having that feeling as though I'm actually not getting, for whatever reason, the same level of information as my classmates. Yes. It's sort of like this missing bolt, you know, like and then the yeah. whole machine falls apart because the one bolt is not there. Yes. And tell me, in school, how do you think that was managed? Like why do you think that was less of a problem in school? Maybe because there were less things to manage on top of it. Mm. So, and I find that now I can still excel in the work that I do because I care a lot about it and I love it a lot. And I will, I will overextend myself to, to make sure it's done because it matters to me. But if I have multiple projects on the go at once, the wheels will fall off all of them. <laughs> or maybe mm-hmm. all of them except one <laughs> like, and that one will get the same amount of work that four should in aggregate it will all go on one right okay so it's sort of like because there's so much energy and effort going into um say like one particular project or one thing that you're passionate about or interested in it's almost and tell me if this sounds wrong but it's almost like there's not enough um mental space left over to keep everything together yeah. For the other things. Yeah. I really struggle to switch modes. Mm-hmm. I really struggle to, like, I've sort of been able to work this out a little bit at work as much as possible because um, I work for an agency and that is probably a very ill-suited format for anyone <laughs> with ADHD, <laughs> or at least for me. Um, billing time in 15-minute increments is, like, not a vibe for me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> luckily I have really good clients and a patient boss. What was the question? <laughs> um uh, yeah, I don't think it was. One. That's I think a good. No, mulling. no, I remember yeah. actually. It was. It's like, yeah, it. I will max out if I have to juggle a lot of things. I can't. I can go very deeply on some big important things. I can actually handle a lot, but not if it's all scattered and I have to draw on very different frames of reference and, mm-hmm. and very different context for each thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, yeah. If I could say anything, it's I can do a lot of tasks if they exist in one ecosystem. So, for example, with one client. I couldn't do the same amount of tasks if they were split across four different clients because that's Mm. like that's really taxing. Mm. That is fascinating. And it's the same with, yeah, that's how I felt with uni. Yeah, that Mm. makes so much sense. I think I was about 22. Um, I asked my housemate if I could have some of his ADHD medication and he said, no, fair enough very responsible thing to say but um six years later I sent a message being like just so you know it turns out I am ADHD <laughs> like <laughs> you could have given it to me <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it was like I I did sort of suspect, and but no one else suspected it of me. Everyone thought that the young woman who was um, very sweet and easy to get along with and kind of just doing just fine is maybe a bit hard on herself, but like generally totally fine at life. Um, no one ever really thought that there would be an actual problem underneath. Yeah, and I think that's a really common narrative um, for women uh, with ADHD. It's that sense of, oh, well, you're coping fine. You may be a little bit dreamy, but you're just, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of like you do your own thing. Um, oh, it's so funny. Oh, you know, you're a bit quirky or a bit dreamy. Um, and because functionally nothing seems like it's a problem on the surface, um, yeah, nothing is identified. Yeah, absolutely. It's my or, experience for sure. Or it's like, oh, you know, you're so funny, you're so fun to be around, mm-hmm. or you're just anxious, you yeah. know, but you can't have ADHD, you've done your uni degree, you've got a job, you're, you've got a partner, you've got children, um, you mm. can't possibly have ADHD. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, Jen, you started to realize, mm, I think I have ADHD or I'm an ADHD in my 20s. What led you to getting a diagnosis and going through that whole process? I'd sort of suspected for a while, but I'd also had a relationship with a person with a very unfortunate personality who it's was... a lovely way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being generous. Um who I sort of confided that, you know, I was really struggling with a few things and expecting a more helpful answer or supportive. He said, no, I was just looking for an excuse Mm. when actually I was just lazy or bad at things or didn't want to do things or trying to just get out of things and stuff. Mm. That doesn't sound like me. But anyway, Mm. he had some other failings as well. But once I got away from that situation, I was able to get a job that I really found my feet in for the first time. So I started working in social media. I think a lot of us find ourselves in this industry. Mm. It's very fast moving. It's very, very reactive. And if you're interested in something, you can just go on an absolute tear with it and that will really stand out. So it's rewarded. I've had really positive experiences with that as well. I don't use, I'm not an influencer. I don't use my personality. I do social media for businesses and have been able to grow businesses and they've been able to hire more people. So it's all been in a very positive way. So working in social media was really good because you can follow and your interests, you can be very reactive and that's, um, that's a real benefit in that industry and um, everyone gets rewarded in that way. So the format that you like to think in or that I like to think in was a really good fit. Mm. When I left that first job, which was focusing on one client, I started working in an agency And it was, even though I was still working in social media and and digital marketing and a lot of writing, it was very different because suddenly I had to be very strict with my time. I had to be accountable for what I was doing all the time. And it was a really steep learning curve. And um, I couldn't keep up. I couldn't juggle things in such a structured environment. I hated it. I was allergic to it and I couldn't perform very well. So that's why I sort of really wanted some therapy to understand it but I also really suspected that there was more going on because I was trying really hard Mm. and I was set up well to be able to manage it um and even so these these cracks were still appearing it was very hard to maintain and I just thought 
all the evidence is building. <laughs> so it's interesting what you were saying there about um, your previous partner, you know, coming up with this sort of hypothesis for you saying, no, I don't think that this is it. I think that you are just using this as an excuse or you're just being lazy or you're being this or being that. And even though, you know, it obviously took a little um, while later until you kind of pursued this, it sounds like even in that moment, you knew like that didn't feel right mm. to you. You were like, um, I hear what you're saying, but it's going to be a no from me. Yeah, it was very much, I get that it looks like that. Mm. I know that this must be really frustrating for you because I keep saying one thing. I keep saying that I want to do something and, you know, that's setting expectation and you want to be, a, well, I wanted to be a reliable partner and I felt like I wasn't. Yeah, but I I sort of had felt it for long enough then. And this was around maybe five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And more information was starting to come out about it. It was it was becoming better understood. There was more conversation about it. And I was starting to see just articles and things, or anecdotally, that it wasn't just naughty little ten year old boys, mm. which is what I thought it was. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So I started the diagnostic process by getting a neuropsych test and that was so interesting so it confirmed that I was effectively just textbook um textbook ADHD so um I really excelled in some areas so the areas that I'm really interested in and in others I was just like a potato 
basically. <laughs> I, I don't know if that would be the official labeling, but um, let the record show. Uh, we never say results potato. <laughs> Self-diagnosis of potato. Okay. Um, so really excelled in the areas that I really enjoy, so language, um, and then did really, really low average on others that I don't enjoy. And the funny thing about it was that at the end of the test, I was like, oh, this isn't going to show anything because I'm having a really good brain day. So I feel like I just absolutely <laughs> nailed that. And then my assessor was like, did you realize you missed a few questions? I was like, what? <laughs> really? I thought I blitzed it. <laughs> like, I really just, so um, I thought it was just going so easily. So yeah, there there had even been a few questions missing um, on my part. So it was very interesting to learn that about myself too. Um, I really enjoyed the process. I thought it was, I don't know, maybe I'm just fascinated by myself, but it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And then so after you had that testing done, for you, what was your next step? So I was able to get a referral to my GP and she then referred me to a psychiatrist mm-hmm. um, for, I guess, further, it was further testing really. I did, yeah, so I did a schema test. I did, um it was a lot of sessions. I think it was six or eight sessions before I actually got a diagnosis. I love my doctor. He was a total legend. Yeah, it was a combination of tests and CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. And that was just incredibly insightful. And I continue to do it two years or so later because it's just so helpful for me to understand my patterns and what I'm doing and where a lot of this has come from because a lot of it is flexible. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really wonderful to learn about. So um, a couple things in that. I think first off, your experience with your psychiatrist is probably quite rare in the sense of, um, you know, requiring sort of six to eight sessions to kind of come to that diagnosis and then also receiving some actual therapy in that process. Um, A lot of people have a different experience, for better or worse, where it's sort of a single session um, or maybe two sessions uh, if you're checking these boxes, yes. And if you're not, no. So it sounds like Jen, you had a really excellent experience with someone who was quite thorough and was really trying to tease apart, I guess, what could be contributing to where you were at, um, what could be going on for you. That's fantastic that you were able to have that experience with your psychiatrist. Yeah, I really, I don't have enough good things to say about him. I refer everyone to him. <laughs> it's like not even taking on new clients. I'm like, you should go see my guy. Mm-hmm. My guy. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy. I'll put you in Jen, was part of the treatment going on medication for you? Eventually, yes. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't in a screaming rush to go on medication. I I feel I am absolutely thrilled to live in an era where we have access to modern medicine. It's amazing. But um I sort of felt like the the less I had to take on a daily basis, the better. Mm-hmm. So we went through, yeah, a considerable and really thorough process that that was very, very valuable. And at the end of that, then we started to talk about medication. What were the options and what could they do? So, yeah, so we started to look at medication. Um, and again, I wasn't in a big rush to, to start it, but... Um, after the process, I was really satisfied that we'd been quite thorough and it was, I was learning a lot about it. Um, my psychiatrist provided a lot of information. 
So like pretty much my whatever appetite I had for it, he could provide more info and recommendations mm-hmm. and guide me through it. He definitely didn't make me feel like medication was obligatory either. So it was just um, it was a process of discovery where together we worked out if that was the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so a super responsible process. I'm really lucky to have had that experience. And can you talk us through what your experience on medication has been like and what the difference you feel between being medicated and not medicated, if there's particular days or times of your life that you prefer not to be versus prefer to be? Can you just kind of talk us through that whole experience? Uh, so I I sort of thought it was more just a just-for-work thing for me. I thought it'll help in that sense. The therapy we were doing was already helping. So first I tried Ritalin because it was more affordable. Did not like that. I did not enjoy that at all. Can you explain um, what it was about Ritalin that you didn't like? Yeah. It felt rough. I I felt very jittery. And my doctor had said, you know, sometimes when people don't actually have ADHD, they uh, feel very wired on the medication, whereas if you really do have ADHD, then you probably feel calmer. And Ritalin for me, this isn't the same for everyone. It's not the same for all women or anything like that. So don't let it deter you. But for me, I just felt so jittery. I felt so anxious. I felt like I was going a mile a minute. Like, I don't know. It just, yeah, was not a vibe. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't drink coffee. I'd like almost feel like I was going to pee my pants. Like, Mm. <laughs> was it good yeah just nothing about it sat well okay and what was the difference with Vyvanse Vyvanse the Vyvanse I'm on is a slow acting Vyvanse and it just felt much calmer it felt I, yeah I feel really calm when, when I'm on it I once had someone describe it actually they were describing meditating but it still works for this <laughs> when you put the power cord of your Mac like into your laptop and it kind of, it's magnetic and it kind of goes, zoom, like, and just fits perfectly. That's how it feels when the Vyvanse kicks in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. The bits are aligned and I can carry on with my day. So mm-hmm. it feels really interesting. Good. Okay. And with the Vyvanse, did you have to go through the process of, like, proving you had the symptoms in childhood to be able to get it subsidized on the PBS? Initially, it wasn't subsidized. Mm. Um, We had gone through all of that through the six to eight week Mm -hmm. period. So I don't know if it was already proven, but it it wasn't subsidized at all until I'd been on it for about 18 months, Mm. I think. And then I didn't have to do any extra paperwork. Mm -hmm. It was just subsidized automatically, which was amazing because I was paying over $100 a month for it Mm. and it was still worth it for me. I don't think I would have kept my job if I had it, not because I work for like a chain gang or anything. Um, so for our Australian listeners, Vyvanse wasn't put on the PBS, which is like a subsidised scheme that we have in Australia um, until February 2020. That was after a lot of lobbying um, and it wasn't subsidised for adults, um, so people with an adult diagnosis and there are still other long-acting medications that aren't subsidised, um, unfortunately, that some people with an adult diagnosis can't afford. So what gets a medication onto the PBS if it's not already? So the pharmaceutical company has to make a submission to the PBS 
and then the PBS goes, this pharmaceutical benefits scheme, um, they go through a process of review where they look at the evidence to see, you know, is that medication good enough medication? Um, is it like the cost sort of worth it for them to subsidise? Is there demand for it? Um, and they'll kind of take input from people from the community, from the public. They will take input from the psychiatrist sort of organization as well um but yeah um there needs to be that demand um for it for it to be worthwhile and i believe that some of the pharmaceutical companies did put in applications for other medications other long-acting medications like 10 years ago and the pbs sort of refused it um, and at the moment they're saying it's not really worth it for them to actually reapply and go through that process again So once I got into a good rhythm with Vyvanse, I I initially only wanted to take it on work days. And after a while, my doctor was like, just take it every day. <laughs> it's going to have an, an accumulative benefit. And I was like, okay. And then I started to, and I was like, you're right. <laughs> I started off on a really low dose and just built it up. It actually just, I, I prefer to take it every day now. Every now and then I'll just stop taking it for a few days just to prove a point to myself, but I don't know if that is to anyone's benefit really. Well, I think, you know, it comes back to listening to your own body and listening to your own needs. So as you said earlier, Genevieve, you know, every single person reacts differently, slightly differently to different medications. And um, if you're an ADHD and you're trialing some medications, it might take a little while to find the one that, as you put it, uh, Jen, that clicks in. Yeah. And different people have different experiences on, um, you know, various medications. So, you know, I think the take home of anything, no matter what anyone is talking about ever, and I stand by this most general point I've ever made, um, is listen to what your body is telling you. Listen to what feels right for you. If you're taking a medication and as you described before, Jen, on Ritalin, you're like, oh, no, like I know that I am an ADHD, but this just does not feel right for my body, mm -hmm. then tell your doctor that and stop taking it if you want to stop taking it. Mm -hmm. If you feel like, oh, actually taking this every day um, it feels really good and I like how that feels, don't feel like you need to get caught up in oh, I shouldn't have to, or, you know, I should be able to stop taking it. What's your body telling you? Yeah. And do what your body is telling you. So I'm really glad, Genevieve, that you um, have had such a positive experience around the medication process. And it sounds like your psychiatrist has been integral in supporting that process for you. Yeah, you really has. And I've also done my part in being really, really honest in telling him what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So. A doctor can only help you as long as you're actually being really honest with them. So I was really frank if I was like, I'm just going to stop taking it for a few days. And then that gave him the opportunity to either be like, well, that's fine. Sure. Like, if, yeah, if you want or wouldn't advise it or, <laughs> hey, there's actually something else you can do if you want to dial it down. He suggested that as I was getting used to it, simply because I was so cautious, in hindsight, it doesn't actually make a difference. But even though I sat on the lowest dose I didn't want to take a whole tablet. He said, well, you can break it apart and you can open the tab and dissolve it into water and have a third of a dose, like a third of a low dose. So he was really just working with me 
to make sure I was comfortable and still working within the limits that he could actually recommend. Mm. So I just say that because obviously you can't just stop taking some medications. That's another really great point there too, in that when you were honest with your doctor, that was responded to with someone actually listening to what you were saying and adapting their recommendations and practice based on the feedback of your own experience that you were providing to him. And that should go without saying in the medical profession, um, but unfortunately it doesn't. So if you are seeing a psychiatrist or a doctor or a psychologist or anyone and you feel like you're doing your bit by being honest and reflecting back how you know, you're experiencing something and that is not being taken into consideration or the recommendations aren't reflecting what you need, then see someone else or just don't do what they say. You're not going to get you know, fined by the police by not following your doctor's advice if you feel truly that that is not the right thing for you and your body. Yeah. And like advocate for yourself, but make sure that you are being as clear as, as you can. Because sometimes, especially stuff like this, there's there's all sorts of layers that get wrapped up in it. There's shame, there's embarrassment, there's subconscious stuff that you don't even realize you're doing. Things like we would sort of touch on certain things that, that would be upsetting. And if we did that for a few sessions in a row, I'd come in and I'd be like, I'm really not looking forward to this session. So he'd go easy on me that day. He'd, he'd divert and we'd talk about something else. And it would be enough of a reprieve for me to come back next time so that I so it wasn't such a big thing that I would stop doing it. That was a pact I made with myself beforehand because I didn't feel like I had or I felt like there were other people in my life who didn't want me to be doing what I was doing because it would reflect on them. So for me it was like I don't have to share anything outside of here. I don't have to deal with any other social judgment or commentary or anything until I know how I feel about it. But in this room, I'm going to be as open as I can bear to be. And it was absolutely for my benefit. When you told people about your diagnosis, what was the sort of reception that you got from people? Really different. My friends were super supportive. Amazing. Like, great. Love that for you. Not surprised. Super. How can we help? <laughs> like, <laughs> I have great friends. I told my boss. He was really supportive. And he's actually helped set up systems that were easier for me. So by all means, don't feel obliged to tell your employer. But for me, it was right and I was safe to do so. And it was, yeah, it was really lovely. For for certain family members, it, it was a bit hard to hear because it, you know, it sort of makes them reflect or makes them worry that they missed something or that they didn't help you and they should have or that maybe, it, maybe they are too and they don't want to deal with that. They've got a full plate. And that's all understandable. So I sort of told them a bit, but I didn't really bring it up after that. And I don't feel obliged to. Mm. So you can kind of close the door on conversations too, if they're not going the way you want. If it's about your health, then yeah, just Absolutely. shut it down. And Jen, tell us some of the strengths that being neurodivergent has given you or that you've found with being an ADHD. Um, definitely my creativity. I'm a very creative person. I sort of said earlier, but to expand on it. Getting a diagnosis was just like being given a map to my brain. Mm. And that was so fun and such a relief in so many ways. It was, overall, my diagnosis was a huge relief. So I was able to see the strengths it gave me. 
the strengths that come out of it are definitely my creativity. I'm really innovative. I can just invent things so much, even if I don't need to. Um, I will. My language skills are really high. So that was a really fun part of doing the, the test. Turns out that I had just really, really high score. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that now. That's like good for my self-esteem. Um, but yeah, just really good at seeing patterns. I can be very strategic, very analytical. I have a perspective on things that other people don't if they're more linear. So being a fully fledged adult um, with your roadmap to your brain, I'm wondering what would be your top tips to other people and particularly young women who might be thinking that this might be the case for them? For young women in particular, I would say this is not a huge problem. This is going to be a strength. Just learn how to manage it. Turns out everyone, whether they're neurodiverse or not, has strengths and weaknesses. So mind-blowing. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, I don't know how this isn't front-page news. When I found out, I was like, what? Um, You're not a – you don't have to be really good at everything for people to want to have you in the room or to want to hire you, work with you, be friends with you, like, in any capacity. Mm -hmm. Just don't hold yourself to a high standard. This is a trait that is typically – it, it seems to be very typical in ADHD women. Yeah, absolutely. It's that sense of I should, I should be able to do this. And I, I find it particularly in ADHD women who are um, quite high achievers or who, as is the case for yourself, Genevieve, might have some areas, um, you know, in their cognitive profile or in their just makeup that they're super competent on and super strong on. And what we often find is the discrepancy or the difference between those areas of strength versus those areas of relative weakness causes so much internal frustration. Why can't I do this better? Why is this such a problem for me? I know I'm a smart person. I know I'm capable of this. Um, And I think that's an amazing point, Genevieve, around you actually don't have to be the best at everything for people to want you around and to find value in you. Yeah. You You don't actually have to deliver a perfect result all the time. Mm. Um, turns out almost never. It's mm-hmm. it's really just something you're doing for fun or as <laughs> to assuage your anxiety. I still get caught up in it, but not so much, or only if I want to, is the feeling that you must over-deliver to make yourself worth the same as other people. And just don't worry about it. Like Over-deliver on something if you feel it's worth it to you, if it's interesting to you, but otherwise don't give your magic away for free, basically. If you, if you know you are really excelling at something, other people have already seen it. You're probably the last to know, to be honest. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Something I'd say to everyone is just to get therapy, learn about yourself. You will make so much more sense to yourself and life's going to get easier because of it. Mm-hmm. Everything in life gets easier. Your relationships, your own behaviors, the time you spend alone, the time you spend with others, is it's just a win all around. Take the time to find the right doctor if it if you don't find them straight away, but it will absolutely be worth it. So thank you so much for talking to us about your journey, Genevieve. And yeah, just listening to what Genevieve has talked about today, it's so clear that finding the right 
people, the right team to sort of help you on your journey, whether it's the right doctor or therapist, um, is so important. And I think another big thing that stood out from um, Genevieve's episode was the importance of, as she put it, having that roadmap to your own brain and actually having a way of understanding what are my strengths and actually how can I excel? What are the natural areas that my brain finds easy and actually leaning into those? Mm, Absolutely. And I think it was really useful to hear about her journey with medication as well, um, like what worked for her, um, what didn't work for her, and just maybe allowing herself to actually have that as an option. So that's all the time we have today for the podcast. Thanks for listening. You can check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, like and share, and our change.org petition for allowing adults with ADHD with an adult diagnosis to get equal access to medication um, like Ivan's is still running. So check that out too.